Thank you, Gabby and Steph, for being flexible. Uh, halfway through those songs, my voice is, is going. It's shot. It's, it's scratchy. So we'll see what happens. Um, it might crack here or there. That's all right. I tell the youth group kids, you can laugh at me. I can take it. I, I can allow it. Um, but this morning, if you have your Bibles, why don't you make your way to John's Gospel? We'll be in John chapter 1 as we're continuing our series through his Gospel. We started last week. John chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just would like to just admit something, that I'm a bit of a theology nerd. Now, that doesn't mean I'm so wise in my theology, I know everything. It means I like listening to theological debates. I like watching and listening to sermons for fun. I don't know why, but, but God's given me that delight. Um, it, it depends on who the preacher is. If it's one or two preachers, that maybe I can't listen to them every day, but maybe once a week I can, I can listen to them. But... Besides that, I love listening and watching videos of people who do street evangelism. One guy in particular on YouTube, he gets invited on college campuses. He's from a church in Connecticut, and he goes to college campuses, and he has a dialogue with students. He's not there to, to preach necessarily the gospel to them, but he's there to proclaim that the gospel accounts of Jesus are historically accurate, and that it, it reveals who Jesus is, and he has conversations. There's not debating, it's not yelling, it's not name-calling. It's, it's conversation with some students who come from very, very different understandings or different thoughts about religion or things in general. But not only that, I, I like watching other evangelists as well preach and street preaching, but I don't know if you know that there's, there's one aspect of our faith that gets attacked the most. It's not necessarily that God exists, the existence of a God. It's not even necessarily that Jesus Christ was a truly historical person who lived and died at, at, on the cross as crucifixion. But rather, what gets attacked the most about our faith is Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. The fact that he was fully God and fully man. As R.C. Sproul puts it, he says he was truly God and truly man. That's known as the incarnation of Jesus, and today we're going to be looking and talking about that. It's a simple understanding to, to know, but it's, it's, it's deep and complex. There's a mystery to it, but as Christians, that's what we believe, that the Word became flesh. And this truth that Jesus is fully God, fully man, has been attacked since the beginning of the church, and from the early first century. John wrote his gospel in the city of Ephesus. He's surrounded by Greeks and the Greek culture. In about 85, 90 A.D., that's about 50, 55 years after Jesus Christ died on the cross. So first century, and there are already attacks on who Jesus really is. You had two sects of people, or two heretics, I'll call them. You had a belief called Gnosticism, which was the belief that anything from the spirit, anything from the spirit world is good, and we should hold on to that. And anything from the material or flesh and blood, that the body, the flesh is bad. You reject that. So they believe that Jesus appeared or looked human, but he really didn't take on flesh and blood and have a body like you or I do because that was evil. The body was evil. They would say that Jesus was like a ghost or that he was like a hologram. He, he appeared from our eyes. He looked like us, but he really wasn't like us. There was another belief that was happening called Marcionism, and this uh, belief or heretic, uh, heretic believed and he re, or he rejected the Old Testament Bible. He also rejected most of the New Testament except the Apostle Paul's letters. 
He taught that there is the same eternal battle between good and evil, that the spirit's good, the, the flesh, the body is evil. And not only that, but he says that the God of the Old Testament is a different God, a less superior God than the Jesus that's revealed to be God in the New Testament. So those were two sects of heretics that completely took people away from the incarnation, that the Word became flesh. And today you'll hear things like this. This is an ongoing attack. You'll hear people say this. Well, Jesus was just a man. You know, I believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but that's all he was. He, he spoke and he preached. He was a good rabbi. He told people how to live. He gave them some good truths. Or from Islam, that Jesus is just a prophet. That he points others to God. That he himself is not God. He points others to God. Or you have the Mormons who believe that Jesus was a God who was born of Elohim, God, and his goddess wife. That means that, God, that Jesus is a God who had a godfather and a godmother that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, right? I don't know if you got that. Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. Jesus was a created being who was created first, and then everything was created after Jesus. But we learned from last week that contradicts John 1. In the beginning was the Word. It's the eternity of Jesus. You have Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus was the archangel Michael who was in the heavens, and he was created first from, from Jehovah God. And then he created the physical, the spiritual world. And then Michael the archangel came to earth and was born as a human named Jesus. And that Jesus was just a mere human. He wasn't a God-man. And they attribute Jesus to being a God, but not Jehovah, not the God. And why do I say this? Because what the Mormon and, and Jehovah's Witnesses and what other people like to do is they like to lump themselves in with Christians. You'll hear Mormons say, yeah, I'm a Christian just like you. You're my Christian brother and sister in the Lord. If you're being honest, you say, no, you're not. You reject God. You reject Jesus Christ, the incarnation that the Word became flesh. As Christians, when we tell others about Jesus, we can't deviate from Jesus' incarnation, from what God's Word says about who Jesus is. And it's important because as we share our faith, people are going to ask you, who is this Jesus and why should I care about him? Who is Jesus, and why do you love him so much? What's the big deal with him? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend a little bit of time on the incarnation of Jesus. John chapter 1, we'll start on verse 14. <clears throat> John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me and ranks, or after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we know that it's true. As we sang and proclaimed, our God saves, and we rest in the fact that you are our God, and that Jesus, you came down from heaven to earth to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness through your blood on the cross. So God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit, that he'll lead me, direct me into what to say this morning, that I don't deviate from your word, from the truth, 
Jesus, we know you are the truth. So we praise you, and in your name we pray. Amen. So if you have your, if your notes, if you're a note taker, a couple of blanks here. We're going to focus on three main points. Number one, we'll look at that the word became flesh. Number two, we'll see that the word gives grace. And number three, the word reveals who God is. So the word became flesh. Let's look back at verse 14, and we're going to hang out on this verse for a few minutes. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now last week I looked at this word, word, which in the Greek is logos, and I talked and I, and I shared about how the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, would know what John is talking about. But I left out the Greek side of things, because John is writing in a culture surrounded by people who aren't Jews, who speak Greek, who understand Greek, and what John does, which is amazing, is he finds something that the Greeks can relate to, and he attributes it to Jesus, and he also finds something that the Jews can uh, take and understand and attribute it to Jesus as well. So to understand what John, the depth of what John is claiming when he uses logos, the word, we have to understand a little bit of, of what the Greeks think about that at that time. For years, Greek philosophers asked the simple question, which most of us have probably asked before, or if you've ever taken a philosophy class, it's the main theme of it, right? What is the cause of the universe? Where did it begin? Where did we come from? What's the cause of the universe? Years and years ago, one Greek philosopher said this, water, it has to be water. That's the cause of everything. Life depends on water. You need it to survive. Plants need it to grow. Fish need it to live, right? It comes from the sky. It, it, it grows vegetation. Years later, another philosopher said, well, I don't really think it's water. They said, I think it's air because everything needs air to live. The fish, the birds, people, we all need air. Finally, one Greek philosopher came up with a different idea. He looked at everything around him, and he said that there's nothing permanent in this universe except change. Nothing permanent except change. You can always rely on change. The world is constantly changing. Our bodies grow old, decay, and die. Everything around us decays and, and ages. He says everything is in a constant flux of chaos. But he said there's order to it. He said there's order to that chaos. So this philosopher came up with the idea, and he called it Lagos. He called it Lagos. And Lagos is responsible for the pattern, for the law of change in the universe. Lagos gave meaning to the Greeks for the meaning of the universe and was widely expressed and accepted among the Greeks at that time as that's the cause of the universe. It's the Lagos, the Lagos. Now think what John says about the word, Lagos. As the Greeks are reading this, he's saying that impersonal force, that concept that you know of, that you claim brings order to chaos, gives life meaning, that Lagos is God. And he came to us and he took on human flesh. This philosophical concept or theory, Lagos, is the God-man named Jesus Christ. Lagos is not an impersonal force, but Lagos is a personal being named Jesus. Lagos is not an it, rather it's a who. And that's what John's revealing as the Greeks are reading this and they're understanding, whoa, wait a minute, he's saying, I can know who Lagos is, it's a person, it's a being, it's not this, this force that no one can know personally. 
And for us, it's important to think about what John said. The eternal God that we read about in the Old Testament, that Keith read in Exodus 33, the one who made the earth, made the stars. I don't know about you, but when I climb up mountains, which is rare nowadays, but I used to climb and, and do mountain climbing a little bit, but when I look out at the beautiful nature of God's creation, it makes me feel small. But it also draws me closer to God that God created this. And if he created this beauty, how much more beautiful is God? That eternal God who created everything came to us. Came to us. The creator stepped into creation. The eternal one outside of time who created time stepped in and entered into time. And the invisible one became visible. So we have God the word becomes human and this is important, without ceasing to be God. Jesus was fully, truly man, but also didn't cease to be fully, truly God. He wasn't 50% man, 50% God, rather 100% man, 100% God. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we do have to think there is a little bit of mystery to that. That is something that we can't understand, because no one else is like Jesus. No one else comes close to, to being who he is. 100% man, 100% God. We cannot compromise that biblical truth. So if you have your notes, the word became flesh, letter A. We learn from John, not only did Jesus, the word, God become flesh, but he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. For the past month or two, Stephanie has made it very, very clear to me that she wants to go camping this summer with Naya, with me, in a tent. That, that's, the, that's the important. In a tent at a campground. Not in our backyard, not in the field, because, you know, I count that camping, but she doesn't. And she's, she's rightfully so in saying that. But that's what she wants to do. And we don't have cable, but we have streaming services and we have YouTube. And over the past month or so, not only has she audibly said, I want to do this, but she's also been watching videos on YouTube. And in the background, I watch them too. I get sucked into them. But if you look at our YouTube recommended section, it recommends videos like this, top places to camp on Long Island. Top 10 tents to buy that are worth the money. What are camping essentials? How to camp with a baby. Which teardrop trailer works best for you? And I'll be honest, I've been looking into that too a little bit. I'm like, oh, it'd be fun to have a little teardrop camper, maybe in time when we can afford it. But not only has she been watching these, and I've been getting sucked into it, I've been watching them too, but she's made it clear she wants to go camping. So church, if I don't bring her camping this summer, I'm dead. So you are my accountability partners to ask me, when are we going camping, and if we did it, because I need accountability for that. But why am I talking about this? It's funny because when John uses the word dwelt, the word uh, dwelt among us, it comes from the word tabernacled, or you could think of pitched his tent. So it would literally read like this. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Before the temple was uh, constructed as the permanent place to go and to worship Yahweh, the Israelites were commanded by God, given special instructions for a portable tabernacle, for a portable temple as they wandered as nomads through the wilderness. It was the place for them to go and to meet Yahweh. He, he dwelt there amongst the Israelites. 
They had to go to his tabernacle. They had to go to the temple. They had to sacrifice burnt offerings, animal offerings for their atonement of sin to worship the Lord. And I love this imagery from John. He's saying something here. Israel had to go to the temple. They had to go to the tabernacle right, to encounter God, to worship God, to come before him. But John says, now God came to us. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. No longer do we have to go to the tabernacle to experience God. Rather, he dwelt among us for 33 years. Jesus pursued us. Jesus pursued us. Letter B, as we continue, we've seen God's glory manifested. We see God's glory manifested in Jesus Christ. He writes, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And here John can mean two possible things. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. As John writes, we have seen, we have experienced, we've seen your glory. Now he could be referring to the transfiguration that he literally saw with the other two disciples. And I'm going to read these just six verses. And it's funny because it sounds a lot like Exodus 33 with the same imagery of light and shining. So this is one way that maybe John's referring back to what he's seen. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and here's John, John, and led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. Yeah, there's tents again. Tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. If you want to go back to John chapter 1. John could be referring to that moment where he saw the glory of God through Jesus, through his transfiguration, a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Kind of his, his humanity pulled back a little bit more, if you want to think of it that way. But secondly, and probably I, I would lean more this way, I think what John is saying is we, as the disciples, we have seen, we've personally seen God's glory. We've witnessed this, we experienced it by Jesus' life, by his miracles, by his healings, by his teaching, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascending up to heaven. You can think of this, if you've seen Jesus, if you've experienced his grace, his glory, his truth, then you've seen or you've experienced God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. One commentator says this about Jesus' glory, that Jesus manifests the same essential glory as the Father because as God, they possess the same nature. Different persons of the Trinity, but same nature. 
He quotes from John chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. A little later, he says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says, I and the Father are one. Same nature. And then we get to letter C. The Word became flesh, full of grace and full of truth. 14C. John says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He came to us full of grace, full of truth. He's the full expression, the, the full picture of God's grace and God's truth revealed. And when it comes to salvation, both grace and truth are going to be throughout John's gospel. But for salvation, they're both essentials. We need both grace and truth to be saved. You can't be saved one without the other. Grace is something that we do not deserve. That Jesus' death is the picture of his perfect grace. That as he suffered and died on the cross, he took our rightful place. He gave us the grace that we don't deserve. Jesus didn't come to earth because we were so good, because God was so impressed with us and he, loved, he pleased us. He was like, wow, I'm, look at them. They're so nice. I want to dwell among them for 33 years. The word became flesh because of Jesus' grace, love, and mercy towards us. Jesus is truth. You cannot be saved without the truth of who Jesus is. Any rejection of the full incarnation, the fully human and fully God, right? that theological belief of who Jesus is, anything that contradicts that is the Jesus that cannot and will not save you. It's a rejection of God. And remember Jesus' claim as we went through the I am statements. We didn't go through this one specifically, but he says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we get to the Father? Through Jesus. Our faith in Jesus. Our repentance in Jesus' name. He is the truth. He comes with grace. He comes with truth. So just as a summary, in the incarnation of Jesus, we see that he's fully man, fully God. Cannot separate those. He entered into his creation. He dwelt among us, tabernacled, pitched his tent with us. He manifests God's glory. And his glory is full of grace and full of truth. And as we continue going verse by verse, we get to number two. The word gives grace. The word gives grace. I'm going to skip verse 15 because it's talking about John the Baptist. And we're going to go back to that in two weeks when it's Palm Sunday. And we're going to do a little character study on John the Baptist. But for now, let's go to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This phrase, grace upon grace, it's, it's worth staying on and hanging out here for a few minutes to talk about it. Other translations might read this. We have all received grace instead of grace. Or, grace in the place of grace. And as you read that, I'm like, that's a little confusing. Why? We, instead of grace, we got grace? Like, what does that mean? Again, there's two, two roads we can go down as, as maybe explanations, both biblical, both true. The first is that we have a continual outpouring of God's grace. If you're a child of God, we have grace upon grace. Think about the manna which God sent the Israelites in the Old Testament day by day. The same is true about his grace. Day by day we receive his grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. A continual outpouring, overflowing of God's grace. 
I think of Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies are new each morning. Great is His faithfulness. When I was a kid, I went to the beach a few times throughout the year, and I'd often go with the Johnson family. Some of you might remember and, and know who those, that family is. They lived behind us. They were our neighbors. And we'd go to Smith's Point, and we all would go body surfing. Now, if you don't know what body surfing is, you don't need anything to do it except your body. What you do is you swim out into the ocean, and, and you go to after where the waves break on the shore, and as a wave is coming in on the shore, you swim with the wave towards the shore, and you kind of do like one final burst, and as the wave crashes, it brings you to the shore with some speed. And if you're not careful, you can get stuck under in the undertow, and you can just get sand everywhere and just like gasp for air and all that stuff. And, you know, it's not that bad, but if you're not careful, when you're body surfing that wave and you make it to the shore, if you don't get up quick enough, another wave's going to come and hit you. And there are a few times where, you, where you're body surfing and then you, don't, you forget and you get up and then the next thing you know you turn around and the wave smashes and hits you. Now in a less violent way, because that's, that's a little violent, in a less violent way we can think about God's grace in that way. As a continual wave that keeps crashing into the shore over and over and over, if you go to the beach you're going to keep seeing waves. You can video it for 24-7. The waves continue to crash. As long as the ocean's still there, as long as the moon's still in the sky, the waves are going to keep crashing. We can rely on that to continual crashing over and over. In the same way, that's the grace that we've received from God over and over, never runs out, always know about it, always rely on it, on his grace. Now, that's one way to think about it, grace upon grace. But if you look at verse 17, there's another way we can think about this. In verse 17, John brings up the law. He goes back to Moses in the Old Testament. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And one pastor I was listening to, he made this connection. He says, in the Old Testament, through the law, we see the grace of God revealed. And in the New Testament, through Jesus, we see the grace of God revealed. So here you have the grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. Grace in place of grace. As God continued to reveal himself to Moses, he gave the Israelites the law to, to see his grace throughout the Old Testament. The laws never saved anybody. right? The law has never saved because no one can hold it, but it pointed to the need of a daily reminder and a daily trust on God's continual grace day after day. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't abolish the law, he fulfills it. Grace and truth are given through him. So I like that connection. John, and he could be saying, as I said, the grace from the Old Testament, in that place we've received the grace of Jesus. In the New Testament, grace upon grace. The grace that Jesus displayed, that he exhibited, showed us on the cross, it extends back as much as it does forward. Everybody in the Old Testament was saved through their faith in God and the future promise of the Messiah of Jesus coming to die on the cross, and we're saved looking back on the cross and on the grace of God. And as Christians, we need to look at the cross as a reminder of God's grace and love towards us. When we mess up, when we feel all alone, isolated, overwhelmed, maybe we're ashamed by our sin, maybe we're in the valley of the shadow of death, our human nature tends to run away. 
We, we don't want God to see us like this. We, we don't want to look at the cross. We want to forget about it and go far away. But I think the cross serves as a reminder that instead of running from it in our sin, running from it in our shame and guilt, we run towards it. We remember what God has done for us. The simple truth that Jesus has died for me. You can fill in your own name here. Jesus has died for me, David Moore, on that cross. He knew my past sins, my past failures. He knows my present sins, my present failures. He knows my future sins and my future failures. He looked upon me before the foundation of the earth and has given me wave after wave of grace. The same is true for us if you're a child of God. We've received wave after wave, grace upon grace. So when we're going through these hard times, don't run from the cross. Go to it. Remember what Jesus has done. He already knows what you did. Right? We, we get caught up that maybe if God doesn't, if we do it over here and he doesn't see us, maybe he, he won't know. He knows. And rest in the promise that he knows and he loved you still and died for you. If you're his child, we have that promise to hold on to. Number three, in verse 18, we see that the Word reveals God. The Word reveals God. John says in 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Why? The Bible says God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and blood. He's spirit. But from Exodus 33, we see why can't we see God? His glory will kill us. His, his glory, not even Moses could see God's glory. He saw a glimpse of it. And if you read further in Exodus, he comes off from the mountain and, and Moses' face is just radiating and shining a bright light of, he's seen a glimpse of God's glory as God, God even held his hand in front of Moses and he saw the backside of his glory. His face was shining so much that they actually had to cover, the Israelites had to cover his face because it was shining. No one has ever seen God. His glory will kill us. But then we have Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, truly God, truly man, reveals God to the world in a way that's never happened in all of eternity. One commentator says, In Jesus, the distant, unknowable, invisible, unreachable God has come to man, and God can never be a stranger to us again. Praise God for that. Remember even Jesus' response to Thomas after his crucifixion. Thomas says, I'm never going to believe Jesus rose from the dead physically. I'm not going to believe until I can see it, until I can touch Jesus' flesh. And then in John 20, Jesus shows up and says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Take out your hand. Put it on my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas' response, I love it, my Lord and my God. It clicked for Thomas. My Lord, my God. Jesus is God in human flesh. That's the incarnation. He came to pursue his creation because of his great love and mercy. His flesh literally felt the nails pierced through them on the cross. His body was physically bruised, physically broken. He literally... Not symbolically, not, meta, not metaphorically, not, oh, fairy tale, that's nice, that's a cute story. He literally died in our place. When you attack the incarnation of Jesus, as some of those early century heretics did, 
They said, well, Jesus didn't have flesh. He didn't really experience that pain. He didn't really experience death because he was God. No. God's word is true. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. John continues this last verse with the phrase, who is at his father's side. And this brings us back to John 1.1, where in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And last week we looked at that, that phrase, with God, there's this expression of a face-to-face relationship. That's the, the most intimate relationship one can have with another. John uses that word. Jesus who's at his Father's side. Face-to-face, intimate relationship. When you're in that relationship, there's no secrets. There's no betrayal. There's full exposure. There's full truth. It's perfect unity. And we see the last words in verse 18. He, Jesus, has made him known. You could say, he has explained God. The Greek word here is where we get the English word exegesis. And this word exegesis, if you've ever preached or studied God's word, you've heard this before, it simply means the practice of interpreting or explaining scripture. So as a a preacher, your job is to exegesis God's word, to to explain the text. But not only that, the word should exegesis itself. You explain God's word in the context of God's word. Not by what you think, but what God's word says. So here, Jesus is the only one qualified, the only one who is able to exegesis God. He, can, he alone can only fully explain and interpret God to man. Why? Because he's God. Fully God, fully man. John MacArthur said this, God, who cannot be known unless he reveals himself, became most fully known Because Jesus revealed him. Jesus is the explanation of God. He is the answer to the question, what is God like? What is God like? Look at Jesus. How does God love? Look at how Jesus loved. How does God forgive? Look at how Jesus forgave. And some of you here this morning, I don't know where you're at spiritually. You you might view God as the Greeks viewed Lagos. Maybe God is just this impersonal force, but eh, I don't know him, but there probably is a God to the universe, this unknowable, mysterious force that I can't know. Or maybe some of you don't believe the fact that Jesus is God. Maybe he rejects his deityship or his deity as a warning that goes against what God's word clearly says. And as I mentioned before, that Jesus that you've come up with in your mind contradicts the Jesus revealed in God's word. And that Jesus cannot save you. That Jesus cannot bring you to the Father. The rejection of the incarnation of Jesus only leads to hell. It leads to eternal separation because you're denying who God is. That's why it's important. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, talk to me. If I'm in a conversation with someone after church, interrupt. I won't be mad. You can interrupt me. I'd love to tell you more about Jesus. And what God's word says, as John says and mentions earlier, if we believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God, truly God, truly man, says you will be saved. And why do we share this? I think a lot of us, you might be sitting here and you're not like, oh my gosh, I've, I've, never, I've never heard of this before. This is mind-blowing. I think as a, if you've grown up in church or Sunday school, you've heard this before. But, but why, why go through this? Why talk about Jesus' incarnation? I think the simple fact is, look out the window. You're allowed to. You can look out out the window. 
And if you can't look out the window, that's okay. As you're leaving church, look out the front doors. As you're going to your car, look around at where we're at. New Village Church is surrounded by people, surrounded by houses. You look out any window, you can see houses, not far. If I go out in the parking lot and speak with this volume, our neighbors can hear us. Why is it important to talk about this? One, we should be reminding ourselves of the gospel daily. But two, because we should be sharing it with our community, sharing it with our neighbors, making disciples, evangelizing. As Christians, we know where people go apart from Christ. They go to hell. And maybe they're blind to it, maybe they don't know, or maybe they do know that they reject Jesus, but it doesn't matter. They're on the road to hell. And we have the truth. And it is our mission. We've been commanded to make disciples. That's why it matters. Because when you share your faith, people are going to say, well, who's Jesus? And if you say, well, Jesus was just a man who came and he died on the cross and you know, he, he raised again, you're missing a fundamental important truth about who Jesus is, that he is God who came to us. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. He came and pursued us. I don't know about you, but I, like, it is a simple, like, I know that, but I've, as I've been studying this truth, I've been like, holy cow, God pursued us. He came to us. As Christians, we, we share that with others. That's why it's important, because in order to make disciples, you have to be a disciple. In order to share the truth, you have to know the truth. And I'll end with this. Earlier this week, I, I got invited to a webinar. Um, it was hosted by Tom Rayner and his son, Sam Rayner. And, and Tom Rayner writes a lot of books about church planting, church revitalization. And um, the webinar was basically just titled, How Your Church Can Impact or Reach Your Community Better. And it wasn't super spiritual or profound. It, he gave, at the end of it, he gave 10 simple ways or tips of how his church has, has went out in their community and, and at least tried to impact and make disciples in, in simple ways. But before that, he said this, only 1% of churches in the United States, only 1% of churches in the United States have an ongoing evangelistic emphasis. 1% of churches have an ongoing evangelism emphasis. And he would say that means once a month going out and preaching the gospel, going out or having classes of evangelism at your church, 1%. And he surveys these churches and he has this data, he collects it himself. It's not he said, then he said, then, oh, I found that, oh, let me tweak that. It's he found this data, 1%. And before we got to those 10 tips, he, he put in the, in the chat box a survey. How true, is this, how true is this statement for your church, right? How, how often does your church evangelize? And, and I'm not going to share with what I shared, but think about it for yourselves. Does our church, do, do we as Christians, or do yourself, do, do we emphasize evangelism? I'm going to be very honest with you. Evangelism doesn't come easy to me. There are moments where I walk away from things and I'm like, man, I think God put that person in my way to share the gospel and I missed that opportunity. And I leave feeling defeated. I leave feeling like a big mess up and a big screw up. Right? So I'm not saying I'm a great evangelizer and I have it all put together. I don't. It's intimidating. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. But as, as I'm studying and as I'm reading about this, I, one pastor I listened to said, as we're going, he, you know, metaphorically says, we're going to heaven and our neighbors are going to hell. 
and they pass us, and they said, why didn't you tell me? And if you say, oh, I was too afraid, it was too awkward, it was too uncomfortable, he said, shame on me, that should not be the excuse. I'm not here to guilt anybody, but as a reminder for myself, share the gospel. Lives are at stake. Eternity matters. Eternity is at stake. So as Tom Rainer, again, I want to end with this. Ten things he said, tips that his church has done. Number one, Sunday lunch with neighbors. Find a neighbor and say, hey, I want to treat you and your family to lunch. But before we go to lunch, come to church with me. So in order to get that free meal, you've got to come to church. He said, you wouldn't believe how many people say, okay, right, something simple. And he says, this isn't something you could do every week because it financially takes, you know, takes a toll financially. But he said, try it out. Another is have your church coach or sponsor local sports clubs or, or programs or leagues. If there's people who have children in sports leagues, have the church sponsor. That might mean maybe you, you buy their jerseys or you financially support, but, but be a presence there. Joining neighborhood civic organizations. Number three, that's like a YMCA you know, or a VFW. Have someone from the church represent and, and be there. Number four, Fourth of July block party. Number five, Christmas Eve services. He said the most unbelievers who come to a church service is Christmas Eve. The most believers who go to a church service is Easter. I thought that was interesting. So make Christmas Eve services evangelistic. Don't cancel. Let's keep them. That's what he was saying. Number six, serving single-parent homes through the public school systems. Number seven, neighborhood invitation bags. You have a little goodie bag, and you put it on the doors, because you can't put things in mailboxes. Put it on the doors of people's, and just, of people's houses and say, hey, this is our church. This is what we have. We're praying for you. We love you. Um, if you need anything, let us know. Starting a service in another language, number eight. Number nine, prayer walking, your community. He said him and, uh, himself and some people from his church, they walk the community, they walk their neighborhood, and they pray for those, for those houses, for the people in those houses, for their community. And when they're done, they put a flyer in the door that says, hey, so-and-so, we prayed for you and your family and your community. If you need any prayer or specific prayer requests, email us. And here's our church website. We'd love to pray for you. He said, you wouldn't believe how many people emailed the church office or that email for asking for prayer and starting that dialogue of reaching out to the community. Number 10, open your church facility to the other nonprofit organizations. We have a homeschool group that meets here with 30, uh, 50 to 60 kids on a Monday, and there's 50 and 60 parents there. We have kids that come in the, in the parking lot and play sports and hang out. Like People are literally coming to us. And there's sometimes I'm out there and I'm like, oh, these kids, why don't they just, they're on my property. How dare them? You know, what, they're doing something. What if they, they mess up the parking lot? What if they do this or that? And they're not, listen, they're not violently messing things up on purpose. But my first nature is to kick them off the property. But then I say, wait a minute, they're here. Most people are afraid to go to church. We have people already here. They're, just go up the few steps. You're so close to being in the building. Right, so as I was in this webinar, I just thought, man, and as I'm going through John chapter 1, how important is evangelism? How important is it to get who Jesus is right so that when we share our faith, right, our community, our neighbors, our friends, our families, they'll know why Jesus means so much to us, that God came, dwelt among us for 33 years, died on the cross for our sins to save us from our sins. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace and your truth. 
We thank you that as John's word says, as he's writing about you, that you came and you pursued us. That you came to save us. As John the Baptist will proclaim and we'll look at in a few weeks, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, I pray that today could serve as a reminder for us who are Christians, who are your sons and daughters, that you came and pursued us, that the Word became flesh. Lord, I pray that anybody that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior can be convicted of their sin, their need for a Savior, and run to you, run to the cross. I pray that as we leave this church, that we can actually look out these windows, look out the doors, and see that there's a community around us. These are people who don't know you. That is our mission field. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study through John's gospel, that you'll continue to encourage our hearts, stir up our hearts. Lord, I pray that we can leave here transformed. And Jesus, once again, we love you, and we thank you for the love that you showed us, your amazing grace and mercy on that cross, that you died in my place for my sins and adopted us as sons and daughters. Jesus, it's only in your holy, precious name we pray all of this. Amen. Amen. At this time, I'll invite the worship team.